when I go down to the station, I make it very clear that you know I'm there for their benefit. I'm not with the police. I'm completely separate to them. You know, because obviously when someone's been arrested, they're a bit agitated and a bit upset. But I'm trying to be that neutral sort of third party that, that is just there for their welfare. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations with me, your host, Angie Dixon. Thanks for joining me for another awesome kōrero. I've received quite a bit of feedback from you all telling me how much you appreciated the last episode with Michael Frost. It seemed to resonate with many of you who have tried to make sense of life when it just doesn't make sense, or when it's just really hard. You know, particularly if you've got a faith that is in some way about goodness and wholeness and trying to figure out how all that fits together. So if you haven't heard that one, I really recommend getting in on that conversation too. But to today's episode, where I had the pleasure of sitting down with Nigel Yo. Nigel is a medical doctor, a GP, who also works as a police medical officer for the police here in Ōtautahi Christchurch. We talk about what it's like journeying with people through their physical and mental struggles, how the system could do better to allow the most disadvantaged to gain support, about caring for those accused of heinous crimes, and about how his love for people lies at the centre of everything. This is episode 70 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Nigel Yo. It's a pleasure to be here with Nigel Yo today. Kia ora, Nigel. Welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, Andy. Thank you for having me. Uh, here, Kwe. Who, who are you? Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so as you've said, my name is Nigel Yo. Um, I'm born in Brennan, Christchurch. I'm a, a father, a Christian, a doctor. Um, I've got a lovely wife, Liz, and three young girls, Emmeline, who is six, uh, Phoebe, who is four, and Josephine, who is two, uh, nearly three. Um, very proud of them. Um, very proud of Liz. I just love talking about Liz, love talking about my girls. So if I ramble on about that too much, you know, <laughs> do stop me. Um, yes, yeah, so I was born and bred in Christchurch. I've got Chinese-Malaysian heritage. Uh, Mum and Dad came over from Malaysia for high school and university. And they met when they were at Kashmir High. They did seventh form oh, at Kashmir. Oh, came for their high school, not your yeah, high school. Yeah, for their high school. Yeah, right. Yep. So I suppose I'm a first generation yep. um, sort of New Zealander. Um, yeah, been in Christchurch all my life. Probably, you know, planning to be in Christchurch all my life. Too lazy to move anywhere else, but <laughs> just very happy and settled here. Yeah, yeah with my family. Mum and Dad are in Christchurch. Yep. I've got a sister and her husband and their two kids. Um, not living too far away from you, actually. Um, just off in Wigram. Yeah, mm. nice. So got the good family vibe going on. That's right, which is really, really nice. It is. Yeah. Unfortunately, none of Liz's um, family live in Christchurch. One of her sisters and um, her husband and four kids used to live in Rolleston, um, but they've since moved back to Invercargill, where Liz's mum and dad are. You know, having grandparents around is so special. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we try and make the time to visit Liz's family when we can or when yeah. they're sort of coming up to see us. Um, but it's we're pretty actually in, neat. We're in much the same boat where we've got one set of grandparents in Christchurch and one set in Nelson. Mm. Um, and so 
yeah, see some all the time and see some on, you know, for some special holidays. Yes. Which is nice as well. Yeah. Um, so what was life like for you growing up? You were in Christchurch. What What were you into? You know, what were your passions? Yeah. Thanks. I'm really big on computer games. I probably spend way too much time on the computer, honestly. School holidays, probably on the computer for 12 or 15 hours a day. Well, Yeah, pretty play, crazy, actually. Um, sort of Age of Empires, first-person shooters, yeah. your RPGs, sort of anything. Um, in hindsight, I wonder why mum let me play so much sort of computer <laughs> games. Honestly, I literally played probably too much. Maybe that's because I was fairly studious, you know, yeah. during term time, and I could really unwind and relax so yeah computer games was a big thing never had any consoles so never had xboxes yep. or playstations anything like that um, but computer games and then sport i suppose yeah um so mainly cricket and soccer is what i played throughout primary school and high school yeah yeah um fun fact i was quite good at running actually uh you know i can brag my the best that i did in athletics was the 100 meters uh, first equal in the South Islands when wow. I was when I was year ten. So we'll chalk that one up. Yeah, that's good. Um, I never did athletics, and my friends always said that I was a waste of talent because um, I was naturally just quite you yeah. know quite quick. And doing the hundred meters um, at year eight, I remember sort of winning, and everyone was sort of still halfway down the track. Oh, you know? right. Yeah, yeah. So I was kind of twice as fast as as most people. Um, so oh. I should have probably done athletics, um, but I didn't. But that's okay. I've always been pretty low to the ground, so I would win the first 10 metres and then get smoked after that. <laughs> I could never do more than 100 metres, actually, Yeah. Um, just because of my stamina, my endurance. So, you know, 105 metres, I sort of pooped. <laughs> um, so I didn't re actually really win the 200 metres for that very reason, and I suppose because I never trained at all. Yeah. But yeah, so soccer, cricket. I did a wee bit of kendo. Oh, yeah, nice. Back in high school. Yeah, my brother did that, so yep. that's... Um, if Japanese, Japanese fencing, fencing essentially, right. isn't it, with wooden sabers? Yeah, so I learned Japanese for a couple of years, just out of interest when I was in high school. Took a trip to Japan with the boys in year 10, it would have been, for about nine days in Tokyo. Yeah. So yeah, did a bit of kendo throughout high school. But since going to university, sport sort of stopped completely. Yeah. Just because there was no time, really, unfortunately. Yeah. Video gaming stopped as well. Um, and definitely since having a family, haven't played any video games. And you could argue that's poor, you know, work-life balance and family-life balance. Yeah. But, you know, I've obviously got other priorities, priorities now. Yeah. And I'm absolutely, you know, fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think that you would be doing as an adult when you were a child? So I suppose early on, obviously I work as a GP, I'm a doctor. My godmum, Jean, she as a nurse, while well, she used to practice as a nurse. Um, and she was, you know, reasonably prominent in my life, I suppose, in terms of uh, my parents' friends. You know, they had a small circle of friends and Jean being my godmother would be uh, one person that would look after me and my sister during school holidays. Um, and she was a nurse. She gave me, you know, a stethoscope to play with sort of fairly early on. So I guess I had this idea planted in my head that maybe a career in medicine um, might be sort of a good idea. Mm. And mum sort of encouraged me in that way. So throughout high school, I mean, I wasn't definitely set in stone about it, but didn't really have any alternative plans. So mm. I thought, let's just see how things happen. You know, go to uni, see what happens. And obviously got into med school. Yep. So it was all good. 
if I if I wasn't going to be a doctor, my number one dream job would probably be to be in like the SWAT or the SAS. I think that just sounds so cool, you know, <laughs> being in the police, you know. Yeah. Um, but obviously, I don't have the build. I wouldn't be cut out for that at all. It just seems like a good, a nice sort of ideal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, medicine. It's sort of always been, always been that. But funnily enough, I don't actually come from a family of doctors. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you get which is quite common, isn't it, to have yeah, doctors? Yeah, exactly. That, that have more doctors. That's right. Yeah. And their sort of children become doctors and whatnot. Um, I guess I've got a cousin who's a doctor um, over in Australia. And I've got sort of a kind of a cousin, a, a family friend also in Australia that's a doctor. But no, otherwise, you know, mum and dad weren't doctors, mm. don't have aunties and uncles that were doctors. So med school Dunedin? Yep, med school in Dunedin. Went there first year 2008 and had an awesome time staying at St Margaret's College down in Dunedin, which is the hall of residence there. And that's where I met Liz actually, um, nice. my wife. So she was the year below me at um, university so when I was on welfare staff in my third year as a senior welfare staff member looking after a floor of kids yeah um, Liz was a junior welfare staff member and then we just got to know each other through that process basically being in a team for that year um, and I suppose the rest is history yeah uh, but yeah nice. so we met together there quite a lot of couples actually came out of St Margaret's um, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law they met at St Margaret's and we've got a few other friends that Minutes and Margaret's, but I suppose you know you're socializing with yep. people, you know, at that time. Um, so yeah, med school in Dunedin was there for three years, then I came up to Christchurch for my clinical years, so that's year four, five, and six. Okay, so yeah, after three years of sort of theory, yeah, um, you can either go to Wellington, Dunedin, or Christchurch, yep, um, if you're an Otago grad, right? Obviously, so you- Auckland they sort of stay in the North Island. Yeah. So you were ready to come home at that stage? Yep, pretty happy to come home. Obviously, family is still here. Um, when I came back, I flattered in fourth year uh, for one year with my best man um, and three other medical school colleagues, um, just because I always stayed at the hall in Dunedin, so I thought you know, I should probably get a flattering experience. That was highly overrated. Um, <laughs> I, I, I very quickly realized that mum was no longer, you know, cooking dinner for me and doing the washing and I had to, you know, look after myself basically. Yeah. So after fourth year, I actually went back home for fifth and sixth year. Yeah. Um, you know, what was the point in sort of paying rent when I didn't need to and that sort of thing? Um, so yeah, went home for fifth and sixth year. Then at the end of my final year, sixth year, med. Um, married Liz, and yeah. then a week after that, we moved into our house where we are at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So it's all worked out quite nicely, actually. Yeah, yeah. Staying at home's underrated, eh? Like it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, if I wasn't married now, I'd probably still be at home. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we've actually we've lived with my parents twice since we've been married and had kids. Yeah, we've we um when we first moved to Christchurch, we lived with them for I think four months. And then we got a rental and then down the track, the rental was just not suitable and was costing too much and we were mm. all getting sick because it was mm. cold and mouldy and whatever. So they said, please come back. So we, we went there for another two months before we've ended up in the house that we're in now. Great. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it, you've got to adjust again um, and different when you bring kids into the mix too. Mm. But but yeah, there's just something nice about having that space to go home to. Yeah. Obviously, as you study to become a doctor... There's lots of ways that you can go. There's, you know, lots of specialist kind of positions that you can 
go down. Mm. Um, what made you go down the GP route, the general, it's general practitioner? Yeah, yeah, general practice, yep. So I'm a general practitioner, so working out in primary care. Basically, as you probably know, your first port of call in terms of needing to see a doctor. Um, it was a pretty uh, easy decision, I think, for me. You know, I've got, I knew I would have priorities with in terms of family. Liz and I always wanted to have children, um, so I knew that they would be a priority. Um, and church was also a priority for me. So basically, essentially, I had other things outside of the hospital that I wanted to do. Um, I didn't want to live in the hospital all the time. Um, and obviously, there are thousands of hospital specialists that have good work-life balance as mm -hmm. well. Um, they've got their outside interests. They've got families and all that. That's and they make that work really, mm -hmm. really well. Um, but it can be all-encompassing, though, can't it? Correct. And yeah. general practice, it's just a lot easier to do the other stuff yep. sort of outside of medicine, you know. Um, a big thing with sort of hospital training and specialization in terms of, you know, surgery or medical specialties is you quite often have to move around the country for your training. Um, in most surgical specialties, you have to move basically every year sometimes. Yeah. So that's quite disruptive on yep. on family, obviously. And I didn't want that to impact um, Liz and then our kids when we started to have yep. children. I did think about doing ENT surgery. When I was a junior doctor. So it's ear, nose, throat? Yep, ear, yep. nose and throat. Um, I, I thought about that as a junior doctor and at the end of my med medical school years had quite a good few placements in ENT. Um, but still that overarching desire to sort of do general practice yep. um, sort of overrode that. The, the beautiful thing about general practice is developing these longitudinal relationships with patients mm. and families and you know seeing their kids you know grow up right so it's not just getting someone in operating on them and then shipping them out exactly and you might never see them again you know as a specialist you might yeah. have one or two sort of follow-ups and then that's the operation done you don't mm. see them again but that was actually something i was going to ask is is like you see people when they're sick obviously mm. or when there's something wrong do you get to see them the results of that or is it just like here's some medication, go away, you know, yeah. or uh, like, do you actually get to celebrate with them sometimes the, the progresses and the, yeah, ab like absolutely. And that's quite a nice joy. So we do see them when they're down and when they're, you know, at their lowest sometimes either sick physically, but often mentally. Um, and then we see the recovery after that. And that's, you know, in terms of follow up or if they need the ongoing medication, mm -hmm. Um, and that's quite beautiful, actually. Mm. Just reflecting now, you know, remembering remembering a patient I saw um, just yesterday, seeing how far she's sort of come in the last few years. You know, really proud of her, really happy for where she is at, at the moment. So to share in that journey with mm. them, it's actually, yeah, quite a privilege um, that I'm seeing people at the worst of their lives, um, but also sharing in the highs with them as well. Yeah, And I don't think we should... I should ever take that for granted either. It's really easy to, you know, just see the next person and the next person and the next person. But, you know, we always have to remember that human sort of aspect and yeah. they're not just another number or not just the 28th patient that, you know, yeah. I'm seeing for the day. But those, yeah, those longitudinal relationships are really special. I remember as a, must have been a medical student or maybe a junior doctor in my sort of first or second year after graduating 
I saw a woman on um, birthing suite giving birth to her first child, um, and I happened to she happens to work uh, to be a patient at the practice that I'm at now, and now I see her and her boys, so I've seen them sort of grow up, yeah, which is cool. quite nice. Yeah, so that's just quite special. Yeah, nice. I said before about you know the specialist roles, and then you've got the general role. But the general role is actually a very specialist role too, isn't it? Because you've got to specialise in knowing a little bit about a lot of stuff. That's right. So one of the gripes of being a general practitioner, and it doesn't seem to happen that often these days, but often people say to you, um, oh, are you just going to be a GP or are you going to specialise? Yeah. And you know, you could take offence in that, and yeah. a lot of people do. But yeah, you're quite right. Gen- we're specialists in generalisation, basically. Yeah. Um, and general practice is actually a training program in its own specialty, yeah. in its own right as well. It's a three-year training program through the College of GPs. Um, and you enter that after doing at least a couple of years as a junior doctor in the hospital. So we've got our own specialization mm. and own training program. But yeah, we deal in a whole lot a whole lot of medicine, basically. So we know a little bit about everything, essentially. Yeah. Um, in some parts, we know a lot more about other things. Yeah. Um, sometimes we've got special interests in different sort of mm. areas. Um, but do, you, no. do you have any particular special interests? Um, I did some postgraduate training in women's health, so I'm quite keen on women's sort of health. Um, and at the moment, I'm doing a lot of police work, mm. which I'm sure we'll talk about yeah. as well. Um, so I've looked, I've considered doing some sort of forensic medicine um, further study. But it's quite expensive and probably not going to gain too much more in terms of theory yep. than I would sort of on the job. So at right. this stage, not going to progress that. But it's so mm. women's health and my police work. Mm. Um, but I sort of just like doing anything, you know. Mm. I do a wee bit of minor surgical procedures, skin cancer excisions and other yeah, wee procedures in the surgery, which is quite cool. Yeah, it's nice that it, it isn't just people coming in with coughs and flus. That's right. Isn't it? You've got actually quite a wide variety of stuff that you're dealing with. Yeah. And that's quite exciting about my job. You know, I genuinely love, you know, going to work on a Monday. Um, and sometimes, you know, that's to get a bit of respite from the craziness at home. <laughs> yeah. um, but I absolutely love my work. I feel so blessed to be yeah. in the job that I am. And yeah, we just don't know what's going to come in next. You know, yeah. it could be just someone with a sore toe or it could be someone that's, you know, having a really bad breakdown yeah. with their relationship or yeah, mental health or whatever. So yeah. we just don't know what's next. And sometimes we get surprised, you know, we sort of pre, we can see our patients coming up and we preempt based on past experience or past history um, what this person is maybe going to um, present with. And that can be a wee bit of a heart sink because you know, you know, their problems are often difficult or yeah. even sometimes they can be a difficult person as well. Mm. Uh, but then they surprise us and come in with something maybe completely different or com- something simple, you know. Mm. And we're like, oh, phew, for once, a bit of respite. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing, I guess, is you've done all this training in medicine and, you know, knowing all the the things that you have to know. But you're also in a people-faced vocation where you've actually got to deal with people. Mm. Um, it's not just about the knowledge of what might be wrong with them, but you've got to engage with them in a way that you know is healthy and works. And and you will get people that are difficult to deal with. You know, how do you do training for that, or is that just something you've had to learn on the job? Throughout our GP training, we do quite a lot of communication skills. 
and as a GP, actually, communication gets you through sort of 80 to 90% of the time and the other sort of 10% is your medical knowledge. Mm. You know, just reflecting, going through medical school, the smartest, you know, in quotes, smartest doctors that were in medical school probably should have become researchers, you know, yep. and not done medicine. Because they're really, some, well, not all, but some people can be really book and sort of academic smart. Yeah. Um, but then potentially sort of lacking the people skills and the communication. Um, and then you're not actually going to be a fantastic doctor, mm. you know. That people skills, knowing how to read subtle cues and all that, you know, they, they count for way more in my job um, than the straight-up medical knowledge, which, of course, is important, absolutely. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> you definitely need um, sort of that clinical knowledge. Um, but, no, the communication, the art of communication is really important. Mm. Yeah. What do you find you love most about the job? You said you love being a, a GP. What is it that you really love about it? Um, so the surprises, so like I say, not knowing what's going to come through the door next. Um, just the satisfaction, and I suppose that's a bit selfish, but the satisfaction of just being able to help people, yeah. you know. Um, and not just as a doctor, but our team. Our team work really well together, you know, from receptionists, our admin staff, um, the nurses, um, the doctors, We've got what we call our health improvement practitioners and our health coaches. So they're basically sort of the mental health and physical health workers that work alongside patients. Um, there's this project called Tetumu Waiora, which is basically together in health or moving mm. forwards in health. Um, and I would argue, you know, some of those guys are a lot more important than me. Um, so, yeah, just the blessing of being able to help people. That sort of gets me out of bed. Yeah, awesome. And speaking frankly, you know, obviously as a doctor, it pays well as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're very lucky and blessed that we don't have many financial worries, if, if any. And in GP, yeah, so a good work-life balance. We're here on a Wednesday, aren't we, Andy? Yeah, yeah on a Wednesday. Um, so I've got Wednesday, Wednesdays off completely, which is really nice. I used to work 8 till 1 on a Wednesday. But about four or five weeks ago, I decided to take Wednesday off completely just to spend more time with the family, which is really cool. Mm. And obviously... It's a really privileged position to exactly. be in, isn't it? Yep. Mm. Yep, definitely. So you mentioned earlier that you're also involved with the police. Mm. Tell us a bit about what that looks like and how that came about. Sure. So I, in my GP practice, I technically employed as a contractor there so I'm not an employee I'm a contractor um, and I also contract to Pegasus Health as an after hours GP so I do one after hours shift a month um, but for the police I also contract to the police in a position called a police medical officer and I've been doing that since June 2018 so coming up five years mm. now nearly five years and basically what that involves is me going to the central um, police station in town and assessing or reviewing anyone with a medical complaint or a medical issue, basically. So that could be something as benign as a, a sore shoulder, you know, or a sore wrist, or maybe abdominal pain, or maybe they've got regular medication that they need organising while they're, while they're in custody suite. So the custody suite is for people that have been arrested and they're usually there for no longer than a 24-hour period as they wait for court the next day and to see where they're going to be 
um, release, basically, whether yep. that's to prison or released on bail back to the community. Um, I do a few blood tests in terms of drink driving blood tests and drug impaired um, blood tests. Um, I see people that have been um, tasered by the police. So everyone that's been tasered needs a medical check. Anyone that's been bitten by the police dog, they need to be seen. So a lot of stitching and suturing involved with that. Um, and then often I go out into the community as well and just certify um, death, basically, what we mm -hmm. call a verification of death um, for any sudden deaths, unexpected deaths um, that have occurred. Mm. Um, and then another thing that happens not too frequently, which is good, um, is forensic examination. So... Um, people that have uh, alleged perpetrators of serious crime like uh, murders, um, rapes and that sort of stuff. I need to do a forensic uh, medical examination on those for sort of DNA, evidence-based gathering. Yeah. Right, so it's it has some similarities to it but is quite a lot different to your GP practice. Yep, vastly different. It's, um, you know... Clearly, the people that are in custody suite um, have had pretty terrible um, upbringings, you know, a lot of adversity that they've faced as children and adults, um, obviously a lot of comorbid drug use and mental health sort of problems. So a different, a big different side of society that I see in my general practice. Um, the structure of this role is it's an on-call sort of job. So at the moment, there are three doctors on the roster our usual complement is five or six doctors, and I'm just recruiting two more to come onto the roster, so that will help a lot in terms of the on-call work. So it's all call-back or call-in work, 24-7 on-call roster, um, and they basically just call the next person whose turn it is. Um, and mostly it's in the evenings overnight yep. as these things sort of happen. Um, so infrequently I'd get called during the day but it's mainly in the evenings or overnight and at the moment sort of getting called about three or four times a, a week yeah so that's fairly intense when we've got our full complement of five or six doctors it's kind of maybe one or two a week yeah so it makes it a lot more manageable yeah but at the moment we're mm. pretty pushed but that's okay there's light at the end of the tunnel because I've got yeah like I say one guy signing up at the moment and hopefully another doctor that's going to come on board. Cool. So hopefully we'll get up to four or five. Yeah. Nice. In this role, you're obviously dealing with people who have been accused of crimes. Hmm. There would be a segment of our society that would say, just let them suffer. You know, they deserve what they got. Um, obviously, there's some legal issues with yes, that. Yes, that's but, right. But and also, human rights issues. But yeah, yeah what, what's your, I guess, your take on that? So the reason why I wanted to get into this role, and I had a good chat to Liz about it, obviously, because she clearly gets affected in terms of, you know, me leaving overnight or shooting away on a Saturday afternoon to the station. Um, I, well, I like to think I came to it from sort of an outreach perspective, um, just to really administer um, good medical care to people in the custody suite just to be a sort of tender, sort of caring sort of voice for them. When I go down to the station, I make it very clear that, you know, I'm there for their benefit, for their for their health. I'm not with the police. I'm completely separate to them, you know, because obviously there's a lot of 
umbrage towards the police, rightly or wrongly. Um, you know, when someone's been arrested, they're a bit agitated and a bit upset. But I'm trying to be that neutral sort of third party yeah. that is just there for their welfare. Um, so I like to think that I'm that sort of kind, caring voice, providing sort of good medical care, because everybody deserves, you know, good medical care at the end of the day, whether you're in prison or in custody. And actually, to be honest, the police are really, really good at sort of doing welfare checks and um, what they call duty of care, even if someone's got, you know, a bit of a sore wrist that's probably going to be okay. They're pretty good at calling us in just to make sure, actually, is this person going to be okay? Mm. while they're under our care. So hats off to the police. They're yeah, pretty good, good to hear. Um, in that regard. Well, like you said, that some of how people end up there, not always, but some of the ways that people end up being arrested comes from situations they haven't been able to control in life. That's right. Um, yeah. And for for want of a different situation, they might have been the police, you know, exactly. doing that role um, if they'd had the right sort of guidance and things. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember when I um, I spent a year working with guys who had come out of prison, um, and then there were actually a couple that were out on bail waiting for their court case and stuff. And I just, you know, we talk in church all the time about loving your neighbour. And I was really confronted one time because there was a guy who, like, I never asked them what they'd been arrested. Like, it wasn't, mm. it wasn't important to me. Yeah. But then one guy got picked up in the papers, so I found out what he... Um, had been arrested for and it was violent um, and there were women and children involved mm. and the the kind of moral part of me just did not want a thing to do with him mm. and yet I thought about that and went oh, like I really hope those who are victims in this have people around them loving them but that's not who's in front of me mm. you know the person in front of me is the person who has done these things and actually I'm supposed to love them somehow yeah. and how do I do that? Yeah. And how will that person ever change if nobody loves them? Yeah. You know, and that was it was challenging. Absolutely. You know, and, and I imagine you face a few like that where you're like, oh, you know, this person is a dangerous person. Yeah. But actually they still need love. We all need love. Mm. Um. It can be a really hard thing to balance. I remember on the day of the mosque shooting and the terrorist attack, I was called into the station not for that but for something else. And I knew that the terrorist was in there in custody at that stage. They had found him and arrested him. And... It just felt quite evil, actually, just walking mm. into the station. It just felt, mm, I guess all the roads were quiet because, you know, everyone had gone into their homes and whatever, staying off the streets. So driving in was quite airy. Just being in the station was quite airy, just knowing that he was there. My colleague actually had to see him because um, in the news it was seen that he had a a gun butt into the face. So he got hit in the face right. when he got arrested. So my colleague saw him for that. And he struggled, you know, to provide care for him, knowing what he had just done. And I've, you know, reflected, I wonder how I would have felt in that situation. To be honest with you, I would have just um, compartmentalized it all. Yeah. And, you know, okay, I'm just here to look at his lip and blah, blah, blah. And 
not think too much more about it. I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing. But still, yeah, to, you know, to provide love and care in that situation is pretty damn hard. It's hard, yeah. And yet, what an important role in society, mm. you know, um, because, like I say, someone needs to. Mm. You know, people don't end up in these situations because they've been loved really well, mm. um, typically. So, yeah. A really sad thing that I'm seeing lately, Andy, is the amount of 13 and 14-year-olds in custody. So because of the age, they don't usually stay the night unless they've had, you know, committed really serious crimes. Um, but obviously you've heard on the news with all the thefts, car thefts and ram raids and mm. that sort of stuff. So I'm seeing an increasing amount of young boys um, that have been arrested and usually post-dog bite because the police don't know, you know, how old these people are when they first get out of the car and they release the dog to sort of track them down and then later realise they're only 14 sort of thing. Um, so that's hardly the police's fault, but I'm usually seeing these young boys sort of post-dog bite. Um, it's just crazy, you know, seeing these 13 and 14-year-olds mm. there and it feels like I'm in a primary school. You know, some of these boys are just as small as my six-year-old, you know, and really sad to see that they've, you know, gotten into this place and position. And obviously, you know, no one's got the answer as to how do we fix this, you know, we suddenly giving them a dad or giving them a good sort of family financial sort mm. of stability and a roof over their heads not going to magically fix everything. Um, but yeah, seeing this trend of um, young kids in custody is mm. just a bit scary really. How yeah. How well, I mean, in my role as a, a board chair at a primary school, one thing I've observed is how much of teachers' jobs are now uh, behaviour curriculum. Mm. You know, whereas it used to just be an educational curriculum and let parents and caregivers worry about the behaviour. Yep. Now schools are actually teaching behaviour mm. um, because it's just not taught. You know, yep. it's not there. Which is, again, it's it's a sign of how things are going in our society and um, like not to paint it all bleakly, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff happening too, but um, I guess it shows that there's a lot more work to do. There's a lot more loving to do. Mm. There are a lot more systems to analyse and see how can we change those systems for the good of everyone. Mm. You know, that you hear a lot of stuff through political circles that are, you know, good for sound bites and good for getting votes, but actually not good for actually changing anything. Mm. And, yeah, that kind of breaks my heart. And so to hear... You know what you're saying about you actually seeing that in the in the station, yeah, is um you know another step from there. You know it's not just kids who are struggling a little bit in the classroom, but it's um it's kids who are then taking that to the next level, and um, and that's a challenge. You know how do we? Because a lot of them are doing it for reasons around, you know they've found people that have accepted them, and yep, you know there's community and yep, there's belonging and there's validation. You know there's a whole lot of things that. They're obviously not being given elsewhere. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it is a challenge. Yeah. yeah. If you woke up tomorrow just thinking of systems mm. and, and systems that could potentially work better, um, if you woke up tomorrow and the health system was working perfectly, what would that look like for you? So that would be no waiting lists for tertiary sort of care. By that I mean sort of operations, 
um, even to see a specialist um, at the hospital and the outpatients. You know, there's so much unmet need out there. You know, I'm sort of making up numbers at the moment, but probably, you know, eight out of ten people that need a hip or knee replacement, you know, don't get it in the public system. Right. Because they've only got so much capacity. Yeah. So that's sort of one example. And then the rest of those people have to go privately or, you know, pay their own way or if they're lucky, health insurance, you know. So reducing waiting lists and capacity at the hospital, but in terms of GP land where I am, um, probably free fees to be honest. Because even people with community services cards that pay a subs- an even more subsidised rate of 1950 still struggle to come in and see us. Mm. And that's a massive um, barrier, a financial barrier to come in. But free fees is not the, yeah, it's not the total answer. It's very complex, mm, obviously. Totally. Because, yeah. What would you say if people are like, well, you should just put your prices down then? Is it as simple as that? Definitely not. <laughs> and I won't be able to give you a, a very yeah. good answer because I'm not a business owner. But yeah, obviously, right. there are a lot of overheads. Yeah. Staff to pay, blah, 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 you know, nurses and whatnot. In, during the pandemic, just through the Facebook groups that I'm a part of and with the GP stuff, there were some practices that were really, really scared of going under. You know, yeah. their margins were already so slim. Um, and there's a lot of good work out there in terms of maybe not charging a patient every now and then. Because, you know, we can use discretion, but there's only so much of that you can do. So there were some practices out there during the pandemic that were worried that they were going to have to shut up um shut up shop yeah mm. um but yeah so access to good health care is pretty fundamental for everyone and not just financial but you know transport wise yeah. and like time wise and all that you know it's not infrequently that people don't come in because they're dropping their kids off you know mm. we hear stories about that all the time or they got family members that they, they need to look after and it's only three days later that they come in and by then they're sort of really worse off. Mm. Whereas they could have been a lot healthier if they were able to come in sooner. Mm. Yeah, do you see a big, well obviously you do, you see a big difference in patients um, being able to access the care because of socioeconomic and other social realities. Um Oh, what do I want to ask with that? Fix it for us. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I just think back to, I think it was Bernie Sanders when he was um, running to try and become the candidate for the Democrats for president in the States. And he talked about how expensive it is to be poor. Mm. And how... You know, things are actually tailor-made for people who aren't poor. Mm. And so when you are poor, you know, there's not as many services that cater to you and there's not, you often have to travel further to get to the place that you need to go to. Um, if you do have a car, it's usually a, a less reliable one that uses a lot of gas. Yeah, You know, that um, just one thing after another after another that just builds and builds and builds. Um, you you get into a bit of debt, so you have to borrow some. So then then you owe yes. high interest rates. 
and it's just this big trap and yeah they're always on the back foot you know and and then we criticize them for not using the resources that are there for them you know um yeah is it any wonder that some of them don't come and see you Mm. i guess is is the the point of me thinking around that but um have, have you seen them more likely to access your services with the children being free yep so definitely now that there's under 14s are free um that's quite good i think in terms of accessing healthcare. i guess you got to be careful there because then you do see an increase in sort of worried well parents as well bringing their children in when they probably didn't need to um be brought in i usually joke to people when i see them when if their child's relatively well um I just say to them, you know, I'd rather see your child 99 times out of 100 when they're quite well than to miss that one time when they're quite sick. Mm. I suppose it's especially more so for sort of babies under ones when yeah. the parents are just a little bit unsure. I try and reassure them, you're not yeah. wasting my time at yeah. all. It's great that you brought your kid in. Happy to check them over even if we don't find anything. I'd rather see them when they're well, you know, rather than missing that one time when they're really, really crook and you should have come in. Um, but no, p- potentially having the free fees for under 14, yeah, has increased sort of other people coming in that didn't need to come in. So there's that yep. balance that we need to, um, strike. One thing that I want to just say again with the, so we've got this, which I mentioned before, this health improvement practitioner and she, our current one, Jess, she's fabulous. Um, she has 30 minute appointments and it's completely free for people to see her. And it's amazing. Because a lot of the time, people actually come and see me for sort of social relationship sort of issues. Yeah. Um, mental health sort of issues that aren't severe enough to require sort of medication or even specialist referral or care. Um, but they just need a bit of a helping hand to deal with their stress, their work-related stress or relationship stress, to deal with their poor sleep to deal with their sort of lower grade anxiety symptoms or whatever. Mm. Um, And I can do what we call a warm handover to Jess, our health improvement practitioner. I get her down from her room. She comes into my room and I introduce her to the patient. I say, hey, here's Andy. He's just having a hard time at home at the moment under the pump with work or whatever. Mm. Um, And then she'll take Andy away um, for 30 minutes after um, I've seen him. And just have a good um, talk and give him, you know, increase his self-help toolkit basically yeah. as to how he's going to, um, you know, deal with life, you know. And that's really, really cool that that's a completely free service. Yeah, that's amazing. And people can book that through reception as well once we've sort of introduced them to that concept. Um, and yeah, nine times out of ten, they need to see them rather than me, the doctor. Yeah. You know, and that's the sort of help. Um that they need so i think that started a couple of years ago throughout the pandemic from the labor government they put in quite a lot of money into this sort of project um just to increase the access to um mental health care in the the primary sector um and it's great that it's continuing yeah so every practice should have a health improvement practitioner and a health coach for sure because they're pretty invaluable yeah Mm. that's awesome Oh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, it's it's been cool to kind of 
hear a bit more about what you do and and how that shifts and changes and yeah we've gone a long way from just talking about being a doctor to you know mm. trying to fix society's issues yeah. but <laughs> fix the health system yeah. <laughs> um but yeah no thank you for the fact that you are someone who cares about people you know you um you talked about wanting to be there to support people mm. and to to love them and it's really important that we have people in roles like yours who have that sort of heart so um, thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth thank you Andy hello hello heaven will I hear you whisper to come I think it would be amazing if more people approached their roles in life, whatever they may be, with the same love for people and desire for goodness that we just heard from Nigel. Nigel, thank you for who you are and for what you do. Here is a blessing for you. Nigel, as you continue to put family at the centre of your world, may you know the love and joy of the divine in even the most mundane moments of whānau life. May you learn as much from your children as they do from you. And may they continue to spur you on to love those in the community that they too might know the love and joy of the divine in their interactions with you. May your children grow to love as you love, to see people as people, regardless of behaviour or circumstance, and to restore humanity to those from whom it has been stripped. In your work as a GP, may you find moments of true connection with patients, moments where they feel seen and heard, and where they find some inner healing, regardless of the reason for their visit. In your work for the police, as you treat those who many would despise, may those patients experience a kindness and love from you that reminds them of their value and gives them back their dignity, a kindness and love that many may not ever have experienced. And may you be surprised by moments of kindness and generosity of heart that are sent back in your direction. Lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when I talk to Heather Roberts, founder of Just Kai, an organisation looking to bring awareness to consumers about food products that are made without slavery or child labour. We talk about Heather's remarkable personal health journey and how that led to the formation of Just Kai, We hear her amazing transformation back to a much more physically healthy space. And we hear about her heart for Just Kai and how and why they are looking to make a difference in the world. Until then, me inoi tātou. E tō mātou matuai te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatiratanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei He taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Mūro mātou hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei I o te hunga e hara ana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea Kia whakawaia Engari whakorangia mātou I te kino 